This is the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. Some of us turn off the lights and we live. Don Quixote, Ivanhoe, Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, Tale of Two Cities, all the rest. Some of us scare ourselves to death in the dark. They give you a way of looking at life, an understanding of human nature, and a standard to measure things by. I took all that with me when I started composing lyrics, and the themes from those books work their way into many of my songs, either knowingly or unintentionally. I wanted to write songs unlike anything anybody ever heard, and these themes were fundamental. Except the girl from the Red River shore. Whereas upon moving to Hibbing, his early and lasting influences included forming bands while still in high school, including the Golden Chords, as well as crediting his education in Hibbing, leading to his 1959 graduation. Dylan said, I had principles and sensibilities and an informed view of the world, and I had had that for a while, learned it all the way back in grammar school. Whereas his roots are in St. Louis County, and there are numerous ways in which concerts, events, programs, and other activities throughout St. Louis County over the course of a year can celebrate and acknowledge the accomplishments of this cultural giant. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Bobcats, the podcast where I talk to Bob Dylan fans about their Bob Dylan fandom. I just read you parts of the St. Louis County Proclamation that was released earlier this week, announcing the year of Dylan, a year-long celebration of Bob's career beginning on his 80th birthday, May 24th, 2021. My guest today comes to us from the heart of Dylan country. She was born along the Red River shore and is a longtime resident of Hibbing, Minnesota. Linda Whiteside. Hey, Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So I'm happy to see you again and get to talk to you again. We met for the first time and only time three years ago this month, actually, when I was in Hibbing uh, with my whole crew, all my kids and stuff going up there to celebrate Bob's birthday and, you know, go see his house and and yeah. get involved in the festivities uh, for his birthday in 2018. Yeah. Linda, the other Linda, the one who was the owner of, of Zimmy's is the one that has lots of the contacts with all the fans and stuff, but, but she's been like busy and sometimes can't do things. And so she'll call me up and she said she knew I was there was like a, a one day Dylan thing in Hibbing that year. And it was just in the library basement. It was only open for a short time and I was planning on going. So, so she uh, had me look for you because she, she wanted to be able to let you know where echoes grew up, where that house was. She was afraid you might have trouble finding it. And so she said, you're coming with your family. And so when you and your wife walked in with these just adorable little boys. And, and uh, so I asked it and, you know, I, we talked about it and look, you looked on your map, but then I, I started talking to your kids and, and they knew so much, so much about them for as little as they were. I was just, I, that, that like just made my day that they, I asked them what their favorite song was and, and like the, not the oldest one, but one of the middle ones started singing Johnny's in the basement, mixing up the medicine. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> so it was great. I, so that, that day, um, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Uh, that whole, you know, room with Bob's bedroom window was in there and like a bunch of old albums and old photos and yearbooks and stuff. And, yeah. you know, as a Dylan nerd, that's the stuff I really dig into. Uh, how did you, uh, first of all, get to know Linda Strobeck? I worked, um, when I moved to Hibbing in 1992, 
I was working for a CPA firm. And then I, in um, 1997, I got a chance to move to working for the city of Hibbing. And one day she came to the city of Hibbing into the clerk's office because she wanted to name Seventh Avenue, Bob Dylan Drive, and she wanted to know how to go about it. And I happened to see her at the window, and and so I helped her as much as I could. I knew who she was, but she's always real was really busy, you know, with her business at Zimmy's. And so I brought her up to the engineer's office and had them, you know, explain what she was trying to do. And so gave her the what she needed to do to do the get the signatures on the, you know. To, to get it going. And she finally got it. You know, she did get accomplished that. I mean, they didn't rename the whole street, but they put that section as like Bob Dylan Drive. So, so, and that's how um, the first time I really talked to her. Have you had some other uh, ways that you've been involved with things for Dylan Days and other celebrations through the years? My priorities were always that I never had enough time to do what all these, these people, and these, there's a lot of smart people that, that had been doing it. And I, wasn't from Hibbing. I didn't have the, like all the roots and stuff, but Linda wasn't either, but she, you know, she had the business. I, but I, I just enjoyed it and would help wherever I could or, or try to add, do whatever I could to uplift it, tell people or, you know, so I'd go to everything that I could. I just purely enjoyed it. It was like the best part of the year for me. Yeah. There's a real joy and excitement in the air when you're meeting these other people that have enough passion for Bob Dylan that they fly in or drive all the way to Hibbing, Minnesota of all places. What are some of the memories that stick out of the individual people that you've run into at Dylan events in Hibbing? One of them is Little Diamonds. He won the singer-songwriter contest. They would have a singer-songwriter contest every year. And um, I always, at that time, I was always going for walks up in North Hibbing, which is, this is where the town was moved. And so what's left are woods and, and like sidewalks around squares, but but no, n- n- just a few um, foundations of buildings and stuff. But be, and I'd go up there and walk and, and uh, right at, at the time of the Dylan, Dylan days, I went up there and they were, he, they're, there's a van up there and they were pulling out a tent and getting it to set up. And it was little diamonds and his dad. So they were camping up there. And so I walked around and walked by and I, you know, said hi. And, and his dad said, Oh, you want a beer? <laughs> so I, I sat and talked to them and, um, and just, you know, got to know him a little bit and was really impressed with him that night. Not only he was only 13 years old and, um, and, but when he sang, it was really good. And his his um, original, they do it you, in the contest. You sing one Dylan song and one of your original songs. So every every person that signed up had to do that. And his original song was so clever and so funny and so well done. And it was kind of like a takeoff of a uh, talking blues. But it was about him trying to meet Dylan at the University of Minnesota when he was coming out of his bus. So it was great. There's been lots of um, people that we've met through the years and and memories that I have during the Dylan days. Some of it is the the acts that they would get um, to come to Hibbing. There was uh, one year they 
they had the um, the debut of a movie that was done by a couple of women called Tangled Up and Bob. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, I think I did see it actually on YouTube. Somebody posted it. Yeah, that's it's. They brought a, a woman who was a po- who's a poet and has published books that they use in. Um, you know, in college classes and stuff. And she's from New York, a Jewish woman, and she is a huge Dylan fan. And the filmmaker was um, Mary Fight, and she's from the um, the Iron Range, but she's been living, you know, in the south or the southwest ever since then. But she made that beautiful film, film, and they debuted it uh, um, there. And one of the scenes is when the uh, poet is taught. They meet B.J. Rolfson. And there's some really touching scenes in there. Yeah, and, Bob's uh, high school English teacher. Yeah. Yes, and she, and they they meet him at his home, and there's and there's that was like the the high point of the film, and it's and it's and it's such a touching moment when the scene where B.J. Rolson is listening to Bob Dylan's song like "Not Dark Yet," and he says, "That's the way I feel. You know, I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to be here." Being a a, a poet, um, she was so close to him being a good liter- literature teacher, liter- you know, an English teacher for Bob that she felt he must have had an influence on him. And, and I had talked to BJ after that and met him uh, just one time. In a, there's a music playing. I think Paul Metza and somebody were playing in a, the park in Hibbing and it was a hot sunny day and I was sitting under one of the small trees that had shade and he came up on his motor scooter because he used one he'd had a strokes and that's how he got around and and he came into the shade by me and we just started talking and he's just so kind and easy to talk to um you know we had um tony glover and john corner played one year there we had rambling jack elliott who played uh a movie that his daughter had made of his about about his life and some of the scenes from his life and and he he was talking you know introducing things and he played at Zimmy's and then he played at the Hibbing High School too you know he would start telling stories telling about it and all of a sudden I'm going wow no wonder they call him Rambling Jack it's not because he's been going all over the country it's because he's the funniest shaggy dog storyteller there is so uh, yeah, that's just some of them. So it's it, it it's just been um, I, I miss it a lot. And you've gotten to meet Leroy Hoykala over the years, I'm sure, while he was still around. And the time when I was up in Hibbing, I got to talk to Leroy, too. And that was a real highlight of my life up to this point, you know, right. to hear the insights he had on growing up in Hibbing and just the experience of being that close to someone that went on to worldwide yes. legendary status when they were just starting to follow that path and what that experience was like. And he was so humble about it and uh, really profound about what that meant to him. And actually I thought it was more interesting that he wasn't that interested in it. Like it didn't define him. It was just like something that happened 60 years ago and he went on and lived his own life. And it was just kind of a, to him, just kind of a cool story, but you know, I'm just Leroy. No big deal. Yeah, he I met Leroy because when I started working at the city of Hibbing, um, his wife worked there and she had just she'd been working in the parks department and she had just moved to the clerk's office where I was and her our desks faced each other. And I she was just just great. And I, I knew her for quite a while. And and I met 
Leroy, I think the first year I was there, they had, we actually had like a Christmas party and, you know, like in the evening for the city employees. And I sat at the table with Betty and Leroy and he's a real like shy guy. And, and we're both finished and our birthdays are both on October 9th, but he had like a drink or something and he became the funniest person too. He just, and not, not like in an overbearing way, but just this great way of you know just telling stories to keep everybody feeling you know at ease and and having a good time so then it was like a little while was after you know like a couple of years before I started talking to him more and, and he's like found out that he was in the golden cords that he knew Bob Dylan and he he was only in eighth grade he and Bob were in you know in eighth grade when when they met and they and they they both knew, you know, we're already musicians. And I, that just blows my mind because I was picturing them as like maybe being, you know, in 10th or 11th grade or something. But they were all, they were like 13 when they started that. So, so, um, yeah, Leroy. One of the great things about the, the Dylan days is that, you know, they we'd have a bus. They'd have a bus tour where you'd just go around to the Dylan sites and stuff and. And Leroy would always go on, go on them. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, like I went one year and I started going every year too, because it was one time I got to like, I always sat like, if I could, like in the seat right behind Leroy or, or right in front of him, or, it, you know, once or twice I got to sit with him. And he, like I said, he was pretty shy. So he wasn't the main speaker on, you know, on the tours, but we would get to like the little theater um, in the Memorial building where they played on the stage and, then they'd kind of open it up for questions. That was time for the people in the bus to spread out and they were, they weren't moving around then. And, and they, they would, people would start asking him questions and he would tell all these stories about what they did. And, and he'd say, Oh, you're, Oh, you're going to be bored. And they go, no, no, tell us more, tell us more. And, and just the, the true interest. And a lot of it was really young people that just loved his stories. And one of the things that I liked about him is that he, Every time he would be talking like that, he would he would say, and there's one thing about Bob is that he never would talk about people. He would, you know, he would never say anything bad about anybody. He always made that point. After his wife, Betty, died, um, Leroy still had would get his insurance through the city hall. And so he every once in a while have to talk to, you know, take care of the payments and stuff. And one time I happened to answer the phone and it was Leroy. And so I asked him how he was doing and and Stephanie said, "Yeah, well, I've been getting I've been getting these call a couple calls lately from um, England." He said, uh, "I had a, I had them call me up last week, and they wanted me to come over there. They were going to fly me over there because they wanted to interview me about being in um, a band with Bob Dylan." And I was like, "I don't want to fly to England." Said, so they called back later and said, "Well." How about if we fly you to New York? And he said, no, I don't want to do that. And they said, how about if we come to Hibbing? And he said, no, I said, well, could could we just call you up and do the interview by phone? Then it's Mr. Depp. He'd want to call you. His name is John Depp. And Leroy says, I don't know who Johnny Depp is. And I said, Leroy, (laughs) I would love to hop on a plane if I were you to go to England and be interviewed by Johnny Depp. And finally, the interview happened and he didn't even know he was talking to Johnny Depp, but it was done by phone. But that's what Leroy was like. He was just um, just cool. He's always cool.
<laughs> That's a great story. I think the magic that you know happens for fans when they make that pilgrimage uh, to Hibbing is that they feel those connections to the buildings and the places and the, and even some of the people that are still around. And I think that connection is there because so much of Bob's work is tied to his early influences and his personal history. Everything he's done since leaving Hibbing comes from the seeds that were planted back then, his love of rock and roll and blues, his appreciation for poetry and literature, his little Richard piano playing style. It's all tied into who he was as a kid and those parts of him that haven't changed since then. So it makes it really powerful to walk the same streets and, and know that that's where that this fleeting idea and this high school kid's head and hibbing somehow he lived them out and made it all happen. So just incredible. So let's, let's uh, rewind the clock uh, for you, Linda. So when's the first time you remember ever hearing Bob Dylan? I grew up in a, a small, really small town that, that were, there's like 200 people and it's due west of Hibbing on the other side of Minnesota. And so it's in Northern Minnesota on the edge of the White Earth Indian Reservation. Um, and we didn't have access to concerts or anything like that, but we all, we got our music on the radio. I, the Rolling Stone, like a Rolling Stone came out in um, July of 1965. And I was like 13 years old, but I was listening, you know, was listening to the radio and then positively fourth street came out a couple of months later, but I don't remember when the first time I heard it, it heard him was, you know, I heard lots of music, but I remember like, okay, this is different. This, this is, there's a lot, this isn't just, you know, I want, you know, uh, I want to hold your hand. Yeah, I want to hold your hand or, or you know, something like, you know, so um, there was there was a lot to think about. So I listened, you know, I heard, I had to hear him a long time before as before. It's like you can even catch all the all the words and stuff. And I think the 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 one that I I sort of started thinking about first was the positively fourth street, because it's like, you know, you got a lot of nerve to say you want to be my friend. And when you're like 13 and 14 and you're just getting into high school and then stuff like all that stuff is like, wow, that's really real. Um, and then, and in the last part, he says, you know, I wish you could be stand inside my shoes. And, and I was thinking of how, you know, we used to talk about, you know, walk in another person's shoes or even walk in another person's moccasins. You know, that's how you get through the snow in the winter in an easy way. But I, I thought about it and I thought, well, he's, 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 he wants you to think about your effect on other people. He wants he wants you to look at yourself and say, you know, you don't even know that you might be causing someone, you know, by what your actions are or how you you react to them. So it made me always like put that germ germ even more in my mind that everything you do will affect somebody else or it can. And it and it's part of it. Part of me thought it was funny the way, you know, he, it, it, it wasn't, it was such an in your face kind of song. You got a lot of nerve, you know, to say you are my friend. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really different. So a different kind of attitude. You don't yes. really hear that kind of in your face attitude and like really personal thing. It's much different from blowing in the wind is like a universal song. Right. 
you know, about all these, you know, larger truths in the world. And then within a couple of years, he's doing something like positively fourth street. Like you said, where it's, you've got a lot of nerve to say, you are my friend. It's like, Ooh, but you know, he's, this is like a real, uh, a real biting song. And I never, you know, people I, I read where it's a snarling or something like that. And I've, I have never seen them that way. You know, the, I see them as making you think songs and, and I guess so. Um, and when I, when I was in seventh grade, I, um, I always read a lot and I, I, we had to pick like uh, an activity for your half of your the lunchtime. And I picked the life working in the library, being in library club. So let me be um, just among books for the, uh, you know, extra half hour of the day. And I discovered the, the bookshelf in the library. I went to school in a town called Detroit Lakes and it had, um, I found the biographies and the autobiography sections. And so I, and I started reading them and I read like um, Roy Campanella's good to be alive. Who is a, was a, a black catcher. And he was in the major leagues then at the time he was talking, well, he's talking about get how he got there. And, and he's the one that told about Jackie Robinson. And I had not known anything about, you know that the that baseball was segregated just 10 or 15 years ago before that um or 20 however many it was and and so reading biographies sort of opened up my awareness of experiences i didn't have growing up in a small town in northern minnesota but but what this leads me to is that a lot of the bi biographies i read i i, I got led me to billy holiday it led me to um Sammy Davis Jr. That led me to Lenny Bruce. That led me to reading um, Bound for Glory. Um, and and I, I didn't know anything about Dylan then. So when I started discovering him and reading about some of the things that influenced him, I was like, well, those are the things that influenced me. And I read On the Road by Jack Kerouac before I, you know, knew anything about Dylan. And and. I had a hard time, re you know, reading it because that was the first like sort of stream of consciousness prose. But I started reading it out loud then and you get into a rhythm and it it just made me like sort of happy because it's like you're actually on the road, you're moving, you're going to new places, you're seeing new things. That's what it's all about. And that was like something that got to be really important sort of important for me even as you know like when i was 14 15 16 years old you know bob dylan used to hear in duluth he used to hear the foghorns of the the ships out on lake superior well in callaway this little town in the summertime you know your your windows are open and i would and trains go through that's where in in that part of Minnesota, it's big farmland. And so it, like about every seven miles, there'd be a little town built along the train line um, for like the farmers and stuff to, in, to get their their crops to market and stuff. Uh, so, so at night I would hear this train whistle going off in the distance and that would be like, I wonder where they're going. What's what's out there? And there's a there's a way to there's a way to get away to see more. So, you know, when I. I listened to like a Rolling Stone and I think it was not when I was 13, but when I was a little bit older and I, and I was um, 
you know, because it talks about Miss Lonely and yeah, you just go to school and get juiced in it. And at that time, um, like me, my friends and I were doing a lot of drinking, even though we were like 15, 16, 17. But in you, and this was about the time where I was knew I was going to be leaving home to go to college. And, and it's like, you first hear that, how does it feel to be on your own, a complete unknown, like a rolling stone? And, and it's like, oh, wow, that's, and then it was like, that was another thing that it just, it turned around for me. I was like, that's going to be great. That's going to be great where I can be like a rolling stone where nobody knows who I am. Because like growing up in that little town, I, everybody knew who you were. Like uh, when I was in grade school and in the spring and I would walk home from school when the, the snow was starting to melt, but it, so it gets kind of hard and crusty. And I just had to feel it on my bare feet. They just wanted to feel it. So I'd take my shoes and socks on and walk in the, the melting snow on the way home. And somebody would call my mom and say, your daughter's out there walking barefoot in the snow again. So it was that kind of feeling where it was like, you get to go out into the world and not be what everybody thinks you have to be or, or, or anything, or you can learn about the world and see how other people live. You get to create yourself like Bob said. So, you know, when people sing that in concerts, sing along, they're not seeing it feeling like, Oh, you know, this is sad. How does it feel? It's a, it's with huge joy that they sing, you know, they sing that along. And, yeah. um, and, and to me, that joy, like I felt it before I ever, you know, started singing it out loud at his concerts or anything. So you told me that you kind of uh, reconnected with him and, and started going deeper into it when you discovered John Wesley Harding. Can you tell me about how, yeah. how you were exposed to that album? When we were about 15 and 16, we started going to a place called the Rancho Club. It was north in, in uh town called Waba and this is like in the heart of the Indian reservation and for those years a DJ named Barry Chase would come from Fargo on Friday nights and bring his records and all that and play sock hops and kids would come from towns all around there to to go to those dances and sometimes they'd give out albums you know or, or give gifts and it wasn't always an album but if you it was your birthday or if you had if it, it, they read ticket numbers or something and um so i i think it was probably you know it's probably like a demo that they got this is it oh you still have it cool i still have it yep and so i this is what i just got you know it was given to me at, at one of those dances and when I got to, when I got to college is when I you know took it along and I was listening to, to a lot I think I was listening to it and I was like I didn't know anything about Dylan and like this was Dylan was already like really popular but we didn't have you know YouTube or anything where you could see anything about him you and he wasn't like on TV that much so you didn't I didn't know what he looked like or anything that much. So I used to wonder which one of the guys on there was Dylan. And I thought they were American Indians. I thought I said, I thought I wondered which one of those Indians was Bob Dylan. I actually thought it might have been the this one. Yeah, he's kind of got a young Bob's chubby cheeks there. Yeah. And from what I had seen, I think from Nashville Skyline. So um, but so those songs 
you know, I start, I would listen to them and they were these story songs, you know, the pity the poor immigrant or Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. And I'd have to go, you know, I'd be listening to it and I'd go, okay, which one's Frankie Lee again? Which one's Judas Priest? And which one's the good gun guy? And wait, are they, he's, he's a good guy. He gave him money, but, but then what he's going to try to make him pay him back. And the other guy, you know, it's like you're trying to fit. And then and Bob says, and the moral of the story is, you know, the moral of the song that, you should not be where you not belong, but help your brother. You know, it, there was that song. And then I would listen to um, All Along the Watchtower. And I'd be like listening to it. And all of a sudden, you know, OK, the the wind started to howl, howl and and what's happening. And then there'd be in a different song. And I go, wait a minute, I have to go and put it back and it and it'd be like all of a sudden it's in a different song before I knew it was over and I go this song like ends before it begins you know <laughs> but but it was a, it was just a great song the the um, images and stuff yeah I think that's not an album when you talk to people or when I talk to people like I do quite a bit about what made Bob Dylan click with them John Wesley Harding is not the answer very often so it interests me like what what do you think about that group of songs was it the fact that it was a lot of morality tales and kind of like parables and mysterious yeah because what i remember is is like thinking you know you know i, I went to church and and i was like thought i wanted to be a missionary you want to be a good person and then when this was like starting to think for yourself more and and, and i was like Okay, so John Wesley Harding was a friend of the poor. Okay, he's the hero of this. But then, like, he wasn't such a hero. You, you know, he traveled with a gun and every. You know, it's like, so everything is like, oh, everything is black and not, not black and white. And you, you need to be open to seeing the nuances and everything and not, and not just, you know, blind, you know, blindly go along with everything or, or think that, if somebody's good, they they can't be bad, or if somebody's bad, they can't be good. You know, it was a it was a powerful thing that 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 part of it stayed with me. Um, you know, even though I wasn't listening to Dylan for the next twenty or thirty years, but that that kind of thing, just thinking about that, stayed with me. Yeah, you said you went a long time then, where. Um... Bob's music wasn't something that you were really like actively pursuing and listening to a lot. So tell me how you kind of reconnected with it. Then once you got to Hibbing, that was um, serendipity in that we had moved around. I'd lived in, we'd lived in several different places and my husband and I worked on the Alaska pipeline and then we bought a ranch in Eastern Washington and lived there. But then Bill went back to Alaska in order to like get his pension, you know, you get enough hours in so that he could um, be vested. And it was when the like Exxon Valdez broke up, you know, and they, and he was help, helping on the oil spill it's through the unions up there. So in, in 1992, we moved back, we moved back to Minnesota. Um, like the oil boom had gone bust and, and uh, there was like, houses for, it was a it was like a uh, bust in Alaska so there's a lot of people out of work and stuff so I you know we we could have stayed there but my family was here and I had this feeling that my parents would need me someday and I wanted to be closer Alaska is a great place it'd be wonderful to be able to stay there 
So we we move back and Bill is from like the Iron Range, but not not Hibbing, but um, other towns around that he'd lived in when he was growing up. And so I um, applied for some jobs and I, I was going to get a job in Duluth. But my dad saw an ad. They lived in the other side of the state. He saw an ad in the Fargo Forum where they was looking for a, a, a CPA in a small firm in Hibbing. And so I go, oh, well, that's closer. And it's and Duluth is even a little bit too big of a city for me, <laughs> actually. And so I sent in an application and got an interview and I drove into Hibbing and this was in like the late spring. And it was like, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful town, you know, with all these old big brick houses and stuff. When you drive on, on Howard Street and then you turn and you're driving towards the high school and that's so beautiful. So I had a really positive image of it. Plus it was much smaller. And it, when I went to college in Bemidji, you heard about kids from Hibbing that you can't keep up with them in math and science because they have such good teachers there. They're, those kids are all really smart and stuff. So I had a good feeling about bringing our three kids here. Um, so I got the job. And um, and so when I got the job, I, I took some books out like about Hibbing, about the range and tried to learn more about what, what I was getting myself into because they also at college, they'd say, stay away from the boys from the range, you know, because they're, they're uh, a little more, um, ne- I don't know, Neanderthals or something. I don't know what, what it was, but I ended up marrying one, but <laughs> so it's not true, but my parents, my mom grew up on the, on the range. She grew up in Nashwalk. So it wasn't totally, you know, alien. So I started reading some of the stuff and then found out that Bob Dylan was from Hibbing. And so and then I started, and it's like, I liked what I knew of his music. And because I'd also listened to Nashville Skyline, because my brother had that. And I, that's one that I had. And I, I listened to that a lot um, in college. And I, I liked that. So I thought I knew most of his work. And then Michael Gray was, which is who did wrote, you know, Song and Dance Man. And he was invited by the Rotary Club in 2001 to come and speak to Hibbing. And by then I had found out, you know, that Leroy was new Dylan and I'd been learning more, a little bit more all the time, but I was really excited about that. And I thought that there'd be like, that they'd have it at the high school because there'd be like hundreds and hundreds of people that would want to come and hear about Dylan's, you know, somebody that knew a lot about it because you never heard that much in Hibbing about him. And they had it in the basement of the library. And, and to me, it seemed like because I was expecting a whole bunch, there wasn't like hundreds and hundreds. But but um, before I, uh, when I saw that he was coming, I took his book out of the library and I started reading it. I wanted to prepare for his, his talk coming here. And, and I was like, I never heard of this song. I never heard of this song. And I was trying to read it. And I, and I kept renewing the book because it was so hard to try to understand an analysis of something you haven't even heard so you have no idea so i i eventually put it aside but but he had a great talk there because he talked about how bob bob dylan has the had the reputation or has in hibbing that oh he didn't care about hibbing he didn't like this area he spurned it or something and 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 michael gray really spoke to that in a real 
warm and understanding way, you know, said, you know, he was a teenager when he left everybody as a, as teenagers have to have to leave you to, in order to be able to leave, you have to like, um, say there's gotta be something better somewhere else, you know? So, right. You've got to separate yourself and make that yeah, big move be, and you can't yeah. be a world famous musician if you live in Hibbing, Minnesota, probably. So on that, on that topic, what's your experience been like then as far as feelings about Bob and Hibbing? Do you, do you feel like with the year of Dylan and with the Duluth Dylan Fest and all the different things like that, that people, the general population, not just that core of hardcore fans, like there's momentum going. I think it's, it's been, been growing like with the Nobel prize and, and there's more and more people that, and even if they don't listen to his music, they're ready to say, well, maybe, you know, I think, you know, I, I still think that, you know, one of the reasons the like Dylan days or probably what you feel like when you go to concerts are so great is because those are all the people that really do, do enjoy his music. And you just get so happy just hearing it. And when you're with a whole bunch of people that are really happy being there and experiencing it, it's great because, you know, there's enough people that would you always hear, oh, he can't sing or, you know, and you and you'd hear that around here some, too. And there just weren't, weren't that many other people that I met right away that were Dylan fans. So what was your strategy then before you could download things on Spotify? Once you read that Michael Gray book and started getting interested in his larger catalog, did you just go buy one CD at a time or how did you approach that? Uh, I bought seven CDs <laughs> and at first, you know, I, I was looking, I had to print out my stuff, but I bought, I, I just, and I bought all the books I could find. And then I, one thing led me to another, like some of the books or DVDs would lead me to, oh, like there's this thing called expecting rain. And so when I found that, that's like, you know, almost every morning I try to take a look at that and see, and then that led me to Bob links. And that's like, Oh my God, he's still giving concerts. You know, I didn't know that when I first, you know, started, I was like, this guy, I could, I could see him in concert, you know? So like the, the Michael Gray came in April of 2001. So the next time he was in Minneapolis was in, in November at the Excel center. And so I made sure I got to go to that. So the, the books and the, the CDs and then, I discovered I, I didn't have Spotify, but um, Amazon, I found you could get CDs on there. And then I found the DVD. I've heard I heard of No Direction Home. I heard people talking about it. And I thought, man, I, I wish you could. I wish I could see that. I'd love to see Dylan as a young, you know, and he was just, you know, getting getting going with the rock and roll and stuff. And I was able to actually buy a DVD and watch it and watch it as many times as I wanted. And then don't look back and then Scorsese's no direction home is what I mean though that one and and just being able to just study you know or to see him to see how he moved and 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 stuff was I, he was just charming you know he, he's just he's just such a care like they everybody says he's charismatic charismatic person so you know I have like seven new cds and then I'd get more and more and, and uh my kids and I were going to a wedding in Indianapolis. And so I had like, a, that was when I first had a lot of the new ones. And so I had them and I was so thrilled to be hearing all this new music for the first time. And I thought everybody else would, but it wasn't that way. 
I think my sons liked it, but but after I think a few like maybe five four or five hours, my daughter moans in the back, say, "Please, not another Dylan." And I go, "Oh!" So I stopped playing them. Then I realized, "Oh, this I'm not like making everybody happy by playing all this." It's really strange how you know one person will hear it one way and then one person will hear it another way. Like yeah. for some people it connects so deep and I could listen to some of his albums a thousand times in a row. I'd never get sick of it. And then right. other people, it's just like, it's not compatible with what they want and it just, right. you can't force it. And some of his, some of the CDs like go together through life or, or, you know, I might not, even the first time I might, you know, it might not grab me, but I found the best time for me, I my mom used to live in Detroit Lakes, and and that's like about a three and a half hour drive, and it's through the Northwoods of Minnesota where there's hardly any traffic, and and just, and so I would I would just like have six Dylan CDs in my player and just play them all the way, and in that way it's like I could when I was just learning the albums I could play go back and play that one again or go back and hear what it was, and and you and you can since it's not like in heavy traffic, you can just let your mind wander and, and see and see the nature around you. That's how I like to listen to them. And so that's like the best times for me if I'm driving is to just to be able to, to listen to them. And I, and like I said, I can, I have them um, uh, when I drive around Hibbing, there's only short trips, but like I have the same four CDs in there and I, and I never want to take them out because I can't wait to hear it. You know, I like one song will end and I already start humming before the next one begins. Cause I know what it's going to be, but I made a trip a couple of weeks ago. And so I was list did that just recently where I went back to Detroit lakes and Callaway and came back. So that whole day was about, you know, like driving for seven, eight hours. And I was listening to them. And that was when I, first time I listened to rough and rowdy ways you know, where it had the chance to listen to it that way. And, and I was like blown away by that, you know, oh, Mother Muses and, you know, the pirate one. And uh, just, I can't even remember all the names, but I was like, okay, I have to keep this one in my car too, so I can hear it. So you said you went and finally saw him live in 2001. How did uh, that experience compare with what your expectations were going in? I was just thrilled to be, to be able to, to, to say that I saw him. Cause I, you know, I didn't know what kind of health he was, hat would have or anything. It was at the Excel center. And so by then I didn't know all of his songs either. You know, I'd only been, you know, that was, I'd only been listening for a little while. I hadn't even heard all of his, you know, a lot of his albums. So a lot of songs, I didn't know what they were. I was just really glad I went and, that one was the time when we were when we were driving back to Hibbing. I was listening to Desire. It was a CD I just Desire, the one that has um, no blood on the tracks that has Idiot Wind on it. And I that's the first time I heard it, and and I just started laughing. I was like, Whoa! Listen, it's kind of like the you know positively Fourth Street only this one was, but it just you know it just struck me funny that it you know it was like just my first hearing of it was was like this is really something. But um, listening to the to the songs just this last couple um, two weeks ago, when I went, I started thinking about his voice and why do what do I like about it? And when he sings his like ballads or anything, to, I was just thinking about his songs, the recorded ones. There's such care in it, and there's such warmth in his voice. 
there's something that it's like he's trying to with his voice let if you allow yourself let yourself be uplifted just by his voice is 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 like projecting positive just through his voice you know the um, you know you can even those ones that i mentioned that are on rough and rowdy ways you can really hear it in those too you know but i was i was like even in the older ones uh, you know i was like oh one song that it's not his but i like to listen to is pretty sero because um man i i just think how he sings it is just beautiful uh, yeah that kind of leads to my last question which is what do you think it is about bob and his music that connects with you in a way that no other musician does there's that basically but there's a couple of things you know in a lot of his songs he sings about in several songs he sings about i'm not looking for anything in anyone's eyes or and then another place he sings i was just looking for one smiling face so um I, there's a couple of songs where late were in the later ones where it's like maybe he was had been depressed or something or or was what he was singing was describing when i listened to it there was a, a, a TV show on us uh, on CBS that where they were interviewing a, uh, a survivor of a guy that had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, survived suicide. And and he said that when he was going there, he said, if I could just see one smiling face, I would have stopped. And so when I when I um, my daughter is a, um, a psychologist and works a lot with um, suicide in Seattle and and so when I started listening to the lyrics, I was just just thinking some of those songs, he's kind of describing what it must be like for people that are in a hard place, you know, and I'm thinking, well, that's helpful because it might let people know they're not alone. You know, he, even if it's like he didn't have any answers or something, just just like some, you know, he's like, I turned my face to the wall or you know, some of those lyrics are are pretty tough, but but it's not that it that it's a downer it's just that it's he's he shines a light on all different kinds of things that humans encounter in their lives and one of the another one of the things that i like about him is um one time i i um when i go up to hibbing to walk up there among the trees um i was i was getting out of the car and the wind was blowing and a song was playing was huck's tune and he's singing nature's voice makes my heart rejoice play me the wild song of the wind and i was just like that's it and i was and i was thinking of this if he had just said nature's voice makes my heart rejoice play me the song of the wind but he added that wild song of the wind and it brings you back to when you're a child and that that wildness of the wind just brings makes you happy in a way you know when when things are moving so i think that's part of them you know he can do that he can do that with his voice and his lyrics and and um you know just getting you know getting people to think about things too nature's parts always makes me rejoice i live in the wild song of the wind i found hopeless love in a room above, when the weather was 
jealous fine as wine I ain't a headed in no line But I got you, put you down for a while You have been listening to The Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. You can find back episodes of the show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to rate, review, and share a link to this podcast with your Bob-loving friends around the world. For the latest Bob Dylan news and commentary, follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Stike. Once again, thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Bobcats. to your songs that you want to say to people good luck good uh, you don't say that in your songs oh, yes i do every song tails off with good luck <laughs> i hope you make it <laughs>